0: Welcome to the Pursuit of Learning Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Murphy. My goal is for each of us to grow personally, professionally, and financially, one conversation at a time. To do that, we will have conversations with subject matter experts across a variety of modalities. My job as your host will be to dig out those golden nuggets of wisdom that will facilitate our growth. Join me on this pursuit. Athletics have always played a major role in my life. It was doing my first Ironman that taught me that I could achieve anything if I knew what I wanted. I had a plan and I did the work. Today's guest has a very similar mindset. Through swim training when young, Ironman training when he was older, Kuni Dillon has realized that he can take the skills you learn in sport and transfer them into leadership. His book, Catapult, How to Think Like a Corporate Athlete to Strengthen Your Resilience, tackles that exact subject. I hope you enjoy this conversation and learn from it like I did. Puneet, welcome to the Pursuit of Learning podcast. Can we start our conversation with what is motivating you in life right now? And what are two or three things that you want to make sure we get across to the listeners today in our conversation?
1: Hey, first of all, thanks for having me on your podcast, Clint. It's great being able to speak with you. And so happy to hear that, you know, we know a lot of the same people. The, you know, the big thing that's really motivating me is that There's still a lot to do in in the world. You know, when you look at the broad challenges, you know, over the last 18 months, we've probably of all heard of lots of different very interesting and very important social issues, very important environmental and and world issues. I think that a lot of people don't know where to start. A lot of people don't really spend the time to think about how they can participate in that. I think that um, and most often, you know, when you think about philanthropy or when you think about making some sort of change. Think about all those images that you get conjured up in your in your brain, right? Like it's usually something about like low income or, or urban children trapped in some wasteland or some sort of underserved community that needs to be addressed. So I think that there's a lot to be unlocked with entrepreneurship and there's a lot to be a lot of value to be unlocked with what athletics can offer there. And I, I've learned a lot of discipline through both of those working really well together, being an athlete and then moving into entrepreneurship, I think addresses this, call it an achievement gap or the importance of high achievement in order to solve a lot of the world's problems. So that's high up on my list in terms of importance at this stage in my life. I've been very fortunate to develop uh, some wonderful relationships, have you know, great experience with uh, working on many different projects. And then I wanted to put it into practice in a in some sort of structure that can resonate with people and say, well, you know, if you have something that you want to achieve, well, go after it. And the book is broken up. This book that we're gonna talk about is broken up into these principles. It's almost like if I was to tell myself this as a young twenty year old, what would be a framework for me to go after?
0: And that's perfect because if I'm guessing at the audience of the podcast, we're probably talking that age range of 25 to 45 young people who want to get ahead in their life personally, professionally, and financially. And I think what you talk about in the book, Catapult, how to think like a corporate athlete to strengthen your resilience, will help them on that path. So, the first question I have about you is when you wrote it, what was the motivation behind the book itself? And does it tie into what you were just saying about unlocking some of that? entrepreneurship and sport to close the achievement gap as it relates to some of the societal issues we're seeing.
1: And who was your target audience? Yeah. So initially uh, the target audience, really this, the project started with just being introspective. I was a, at a per, at a personal place in life where pandemic basically kind of highlighted a lot of opportunity for us to think about what's going on, taking stock of our life. And I was also reaching a personal kind of milestone. Everyone feels like they have a midlife crisis when they turn 40 years old. And I wasn't going to go and buy a Porsche 911. I thought I'd think about like, what did I learn in the last 20 years? That's really the question I asked myself is like, okay, there's been this great experience and I've been feeling pretty blessed with all these things that we've been able to accomplish with my different teams that I've had a chance to work with have had a been blessed to you know call it a, having a seat at the table in, in a boardroom but also in terms of uh, life and so I wanted to look at that and say well what how would I hold myself accountable for keeping to that same pace in the next 20 years 30 years and that wasn't necessarily you know speaking directly about carrying out the same kind of trajectory it was just about What could I do differently? And what maybe do I want to focus on differently? So that audience is really me. And then at the same time, I have been, I guess uh, you could say, kind of shaken up by the fact that there's some large issues still that we're dealing with. I've had the lens of the life science community and working in biotech. And there is a tremendous amount of opportunity and technology out there that that we're seeing that can be uh, quite life changing for people that have unmet medical conditions. But then you take a second and you look at any industry, and any industry has a lot of opportunity, whether it's education, whether it's the tech, the world of technology, you know, whether it's artificial intelligence. So really, this is, was an opportunity to have a bit of a call to action saying, okay, if I was to be prescriptive to myself, and if I was to replicate and clone myself at, at 20 years old, what would I tell myself? So that was the really the audience is that there's a lot of young people, and I was one of them. Where I was looking for lots of different opportunities and really trying to figure out what's the guide posts that I could work in. How do I take advantage of different opportunities that are put in front of me? How do I work with different people? And I've been thankful that you know a big part of that in terms of call it character building has been people in my life that have helped. That coaches the some of the people that we know in common. They've been big influences. I, I write about in my book in terms of um, really good friends that have been there and, and guided and taught me certain principles. And that's what the unique thing about experience and really taking advantage of those experiences is that, oh, wait, all right, so is that something that you can establish as a structure? Is it some sort of recipe or formula that can be applied and, and replicated? I don't think that entire, you know, everything we do in life can be broken down into a formula, especially right now. But I do think, and I believe that structure does offer a lot of opportunity for us to go after some big problems.
0: Agreed on that part there. And it raises an interesting question that I often think about. Because a lot of what you write about in catapult, if I was talking to my 20 year old self is similar messages that I would deliver. And so it raises the question, Pooney, how much of what we're saying could work for anyone versus how much of it worked because you're you and I'm me. And if I'm 22, I had a, a person on social media today message me who was 22 after I wrote a post about, Hey, here's, you know, where I was 10 years ago, here's where I am today. And here's how you can get there, right? And he said, how do you think I could get there? Because I've been meandering in life. And I said, well, here's some of the things you have to think about.
1: Yeah. Well, so (laughs) you're right.
0: (laughs) Can they get there? If they read and they do it, can they get there?
1: Yeah. Well, you're bringing up a really key question that I always going to continue to ask myself is how do people become who they are, right? And there's so many different pathways. You know, there's the forming of the will, the mind, the heart, the soul, different you know, individuals that you know, get different experiences along the way. I, at the end of the day, we, all, we ask ourselves a lot of questions. What makes a good citizen? What makes uh, you and I are both fathers? So what makes an attentive father and, and supportive to our, our spouses? You know, how do we get curiosity out of our children? How does a, a teacher become a devoted teacher? How is a you know a CEO uh, wise and so on? So I think when people are really put to the test of trying to describe their own uh, character, they I've noticed this in terms of when you have these discussions with your colleagues. Sorry, they really kind of distill it down to kind of three different components. First, they usually cite kind of the presence of somebody that's really loving and some sort of authoritative figure. That has given some sort of impression on their life. You know, this usually is a parent, or could be a grandparent, could be a teacher, but a, it also sometimes is a coach. I think I can say that in my particular life, I can call upon each one of those categories I just mentioned. Second, they usually recall that they've had some sort of struggle, right? And they're and that forever defined them. Uh, sometimes it's like a breakup of a relationship. It's some sort of you know scarring that left you. To kind of find strength and and you're rebuilding from there, and third is usually something that's been inspirational and it serves something greater than themselves and it's a, it's a commitment or something that they're really passionate about. So for me, that all boils and distills down to some identifying with with your purpose. So you know, I walk through a framework. I you know I, the book's only two hundred and eighty pages long or whatever the exact number was. Um, I think you can easily spend a lot of time trying to f- become philosophical around how do you d- get to your purpose I think it t- me it for me to take a step back and kind of answering your question is like you're really trying to understand yourself as, a, as an individual and in character and then recognize what you're passionate about and what are those, what is that underlying patterns and other components that are giving you that and that's what one of the chapters actually breaks down is a is a very rapid framework. It's actually purposely called that way in terms of purpose to impact because it's it's just a framework so people can get their ideas on paper and then they continue spending time on it. I can say that that's almost like a lifelong process. I was speaking to uh, my executive coach today um, on another matter and we just had a little side conversation about you know some people actually have gone as far as. Trying to understand uh, what what they don't want to like be passionate about, right? Or like a, call it like a not focused on their purpose. The opposite, uh, which is fine. You might be at a certain party part, time in your life where that's important. Um, so I think that there's a lot like you know it always comes back down to what do we want to accomplish. Uh, everyone, people can kind of align with these different influences that we talked about, and it channels that into being clear about what we want to accomplish, then that makes it very attainable in terms of uh, these types of objectives and accomplishments that we want to have. And I think really rewarding as well because you get comfortable with the outcome of those because not every single race is a first place and not every single entrepreneurial venture that you have turns into becoming profitable.
0: The... I want to stay on this purpose one for you, with you for a while because you, you you write a fair bit about it and I think it's very important for people in really achieving at a high level is tying it into their purpose. What are some questions you might throw at someone to say, hey, if you're thinking about you know what is my purpose? What are some things you would suggest they think about to get at what really jacks me up? What really drives me?
1: Yeah, so I think it, it is a bit about really asking yourself, what are the components or ingredients that, that end up being the, um, you know, how, how do they become, who, how, how did they become the individual they are? You know, what what is those descriptors that describe their own character? Um, there's ways to force you to do that. There's tools out there that can really help you understand that. Um, and the book even talks about that in in the appendix, but I think it's even more basic than that in terms of look at all the people that, you know, if you spend time journaling, if you spend time listening to that voice in your head, if you spend time uh, like I do, uh, spending a lot of time doing these endurance sports where you have a lot of time to yourself when you're running 10 miles and then you you use that opportunity to kind of work through different issues. Sometimes it's operational at work and sometimes it's just like, okay, I got to get some uh, free headspace to get things done. But It all boils down to in terms of certain questions you can ask yourself around that. I actually have some examples in the book, uh, and I'm going to see if I can pull them up for you.
0: And then as you're doing that, something to throw at you, and we we can come back to those, is related to purpose, but a little bit different and a very powerful concept that you write about is the Japanese term ikigai. Correct me if I'm wrong on the pronunciation of that, which I absolutely love. Huge fan of it. Can you share with our readers, there's four questions that you're really asking yourself when you're trying to establish that icky guy. And what are those? And what is the importance of how they all intersect? Because I think the sweet spot we all want to get to is where we're hitting all four of them right down the middle, right?
1: Yeah. No, it's a good one. I've been, after kind of researching on this and and then incorporating it in the book, I thought Ikigai did the best explanation and the most comprehensive explanation around this concept of purpose. And yeah, so there's four pillars to it. One is the satisfaction that you feel like, what are you good at? The other is an area called what you love. Uh, The other is what you can be kind of paid for in terms of your profession and vocation. And then the other is what the world needs, and that could be around mission and vocation. Uh, the kind of the four surrounding uh, parts around that are the, these internal feelings. One is around satisfaction, which is usually around your passion. The other is around your, from a professional standpoint, you you obviously need to be in a comfortable place and be comfortable with the component of you know sometimes that is it can leave a kind of empty component where it becomes a what they call you know a nine to five uh, kind of syndrome and the other on a vocation side that's what brings you that excitement but at the same time like you one usually knows that if you, sometimes if you're spending you know too much time on that and it's not a paid position then there can be uncertainty around that and then the last one was around this idea that okay the things that you really um, love and you want to you have a mission around it uh, how it brings you delight and fullness, but sometimes it doesn't necessarily uh, bring the wealth or, or you know, you're know, you not necessarily paid for it. This is just what kind of philanthropy is about. So yeah, there there's these concentric circles and Ikigai is in the center of it. And it's been uh, something that this description that I have in the book is really adapted from an author, Hector Garces. And he wrote a book called The Japanese Secret to a Long and Happy Life. And he studied... A these people in Okinawa that actually uh, that has the highest concentration of centurions in the world. So personal goal of mine to kind of go the, to go there and experience for myself what that would be like. Maybe uh, that could be uh, the place where we want to retire, both you and I.
0: <laughs> it really ties into the concept, you know, Warren Buffett, if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life, right? And so I imagine if we find that icky guy, you're waking up and you're spending your whole day doing something, and you're thinking, "Oh, that was the most amazing day!" And someone paid me money to do it.
1: Yeah, I was able to pull up those questions that we were talking about. So this this chapter in the book is—I I don't want to mistake it for just by reading the chapter, somebody is able to get to that outcome because so, I'm—that's not—I'm not a professional in in that uh, area. However, I've put together a framework that actually served me very well and i've tried to condense it and i actually got different people's input here in order to define it so one of the uh the areas in the chapter actually talks about these potential selected questions i really want to encourage people to find it themselves in fact at this point in the book i've said put the book down and come back to it in a few weeks while you're sitting there and defining your purpose but the type of questions are what activities would infuse my life uh with more joy and meaning what should i be doing with my time and my abilities that that would be helpful and make a difference in my life for those I love and potentially for others and so on. And so it, it is very really asking you to be introspective and you know spend the time to sit down and, and write about you know what these different questions mean to you, mean to you as an individual. And out of that is what you're really extrapolating perhaps to put everything in nicely in those little concentric circles that we talked about in Nikigai. Or it helps you to define some very clear objectives of how things that you want to accomplish are going to help you be aligned with your purpose. And later in that chapter, there's actually a table that goes through a a very methodical process of purpose to impact plan. And the point being that, hey, at the end of the day, we want you to be able to look back and be very satisfied with the accomplishments. And I, I, for one sometimes i've had a tough time with that i think maybe you know i think you and i are both wired in terms of mediocrity doesn't sit well with us but at the same time recognizing that life you know does throw different throw different th- throw different things at you and also taking a moment to take a beat and i talked to talked about this a few months ago about when i came to the us and started working in life sciences i was just so committed to working in you worked in the professional areas so as a, in the public accounting place, this uh, space. So you understand kind of the long hours that are associated with, you know, those different types of professions. So I was in corporate finance, had these long 14-hour days or 16-hour days. I was living in La Jolla on sea Beach. So it's like the, basically the surfing mecca of this region. Uh, some of the pros surf there and, and being a competitive swimmer, I was very Feeling very inclined and confident that I should be able to go out in the water and surf. I never took the opportunity to do that. The one time I did, it was a, a very bad timing and somebody got really territorial about their space. But, anyways, the lesson that I learned, like, you know, 10 years now later, I was like, I should have taken advantage of that moment of spending more time, uh, you know, enjoying surfing and other things. Finally, you know, my kids now, 12 and nine, were. We're enjoying the lifestyle that this this uh, community brings, and the beaches, and and paddleboarding, and surfing, and all of these things. Which I guess, yeah, it takes a little while to you know make that connection. But so we all get obsessed with our call it our our passion, and and sometimes it gets kind of rolled in with oh this is aligned a with my purpose, so I need to do this at the expense of everything else. And I think the good thing about you bringing up ikigai is that it's it. It's very much comprehensive that there's components in life that bring you joy that need to be worked in there. And it doesn't mean that you have to have some sort of magical balance to life. It's just it needs to fit.
0: And, and we're going to talk about balance and joy and, and tying that all together later for sure. I want to stay with purpose a little with you first. One of the things you write about it is that purpose is directly linked to your ability to demonstrate authenticity with consistency what do you mean by that
1: yeah so i believe that a lot of our focus on character so the authenticity part is is very closely linked to purpose because even though you know these different ingredients and components of character aren't like formulaic there's they're naturally you can't manufacture experience you can't Manufacture love, or or struggle, or you know these different parts of like what big part of this book is about this concept of resilience. So I believe that it's really those that important part of recognizing who you are as an individual, uh, and and that's what translates into the necessary parts for a purpose to be effective. So. You know, it's like maybe using the analogy that you can dream of being, dream of being like, I was going to say like a rapper. I don't know why I'm thinking a rapper, but let's just say like, dream of being a hip hop artist. Okay. (laughs) So you can dream of being Jay-Z. However, you know, like there, there's a, and, and very well, that could be, you know, an inauthentic approach to that in terms of people that act in, in that way, Uh, before you know establishing kind of that foundation of what what needs to happen in order for them to get there. certainly uh, maybe that's not the best example because part of being an artist is expressing yourself but actually that's a good one so you know that's very much it when you're expressing yourself as an artist you're really being who you are there is this other part of being an artist or an actor where you have to take on these different personas and character but I think that the ones that are the most successful is where they can channel their expression. And it's the one that's always molding their character. It's the, it's the fuel that's molding the uh, outcome that they want to see in terms of achieving uh, their purpose.
0: Yeah, what I'm hearing there, and, and fact check me if I'm wrong on this, is, you know, I can want to be Jay-Z, but I haven't. I don't have the lived experience. That Jay-Z had to become Jay-Z. So if I just try to mimic him, it won't have that authenticity. It won't be consistent. I won't be able to become him. I should instead focus on, well, what is my lived experience? And based on that, let's say I still want to be a hip hop artist. Maybe it's a different type of hip hop artist. Maybe it's a, it's a me hip hop artist, not a, not someone I'm just trying to fake my way to.
1: You articulated it very well. That's a, a great way to use that example that we, we just came up with on the spot.
0: <laughs> yeah, and it would be very hard to for me to be Jay-Z, partially because I have no rhythm or ability with music whatsoever. But I, I love that. And so let's say we've de- determined our purpose, we, we have our guy. How do we use that to become a better corporate athlete? And for the listeners, I love how you took the concept of being an athlete and we just refer to it as a corporate athlete because the idea is we can take these tools and habits and characteristics of being a good athlete and take them into the, uh, the corporate world. So, how do I use my purpose to be a better corporate athlete in a leadership position?
1: Yeah. So, firstly, uh, Tony Schwartz uh, is the one that coined the term corporate athlete. I, I think I've tried to bring a renewal. To that concept that's been around for some time i think that the cool thing about athleticism and all of the different uh, parallels that you see in being a, com- a competitive athlete move uh, or shift like uh, fit very well with uh, with being an entrepreneur and a lot of um entrepreneurship uh, sometimes is about finding that stride you can't find your stride uh, necessarily without uh, the right experience uh, you've been an athlete, so you can appreciate when you have that feeling of that comfortable stride when you're pedaling or when you are hitting and striking your foot at the right cadence. And that comes with experience. You're not going to get that feel of the water or feel of the foot hitting the pavement and kicking back up in that quick motion uh, without getting the miles underneath you and, and the time in the in the pool or, or what have you. So, same thing applies to entrepreneurship. I think, like we talked about in the example of the of the hip hop artist, you know, these experience is a big component of this. And for for the corporate athlete, uh, what I try to address in in uh, catapult is that sometimes, like a lot of people get confused that there is this just because you have time and experience on things is what you end up translating into. The best measurement, uh, you know, of, of experience. And that's often the way that the corporate world works. I mean, ask anybody to tell you their bio, they're going to say, oh, I, we're going to work 20 years in da-da-da industry or whatever. And then all of a sudden, you know, they're considered some sort of key opinion leader in that space. Yeah, I guess the same can be true for athletes, but it's actually more true, I believe, for athletes, because when somebody says that they've spent, you know, 20 years in, as a professional basketball player, uh, well, you know that They've got that, that, that very, very specific experience. So to me, in order to be effective as an entrepreneur and as a corporate athlete, really, it's not just measuring this time as a unit of of measurement. It's really around experience. And the more uh, quantifiable experience that you have, the more condensed experience that you have, usually can be, it can translate into some amazing outcomes. So tying this back to purpose, well the only way you're going to get quantifiable experiences if you're focused on the passions that you you're focused on. you know so I think that that's where we often get lost in terms of career development and that's where I think purpose and this you know coming back to the first comment I made about, about trying to understand who one is as in terms of the character, what makes them tick is so critical at an early stage. Because then as you're moving yourself through those call it the proverbial checkbox of things you need to do in your life, like finish your education and get your degree and find a career and get a house and buy a car and maybe settle down or whatever those things are. Well, along the way, if you if you've identified with what are those things that are able to complement, then it's that much more rewarding. And it's almost like you're investing in that process early. And as you are achieving that, then I think that there's a higher rate of achievement. So you're, I think that there's a higher rate of success around the end goal, and I can, not not wouldn't say end goal, but in terms of the objective that one's after. If you can graduate and immediately kind of move into the career that you're interested in, in moving into and learn from that and kind of graduate to the next step, then you've almost addressed that achievement gap for yourself, right? Like, whereas if with a lack of purpose, it's kind of like you're just moving through the motions, but not really being authentic to yourself and honest to yourself about what do I want to actually get out of this process? Otherwise I'm kind of just wasting my own time in the process. So I don't want to like really harp on that, that issue, but I think that, you know, this, there's a big component of this book really around trying to motivate individuals to recognize what is their definition of their own success and, and becoming a high performer for themselves. I'm not suggesting you compare against anyone. It's really your own definition for high performance. So that you know trapezium that's in the, in the book called The Catapult or Corporate Athlete High Performance Trapezium, it's very purposely built on this corporate athlete definition, and I've modified it relative to the old corporate athlete definition by putting in a lot of emphasis on purpose, because I believe it starts really early. If you can align with your purpose and, and continue to define it and continue to evolve it, then it's basically open-ended, and you're it's going to help you get to the different goals that you have, in terms of long-term goals, but all those mini goals and important goals along the way.
0: Yeah. If I take what you're saying there, Puneet, with back to sport, right? And you look at your kids, your kids are pretty close in age to mine. And you put them in a sport that they don't like, right? They just meander their way through that sport. And as a parent, it's actually painful to go participate or watch, right? I mean, I know we're all supposed to love our kids What's that? uh, Unconditionally, right? And sure, I love them unconditionally, but that doesn't mean I can't tell them that they suck at basketball if they suck at basketball. But when you have them in a sport that they love and, you know, when they're kids, that's their, in a lot of ways, that's their passion or their purpose. And when I pick up my oldest boy, I picked him up today at football practice for about three hours and he's practicing five days a week. And Like the enthusiasm, the love that he has for it, he's willing to put in 15 hours a week, 20 hours a week. And so if someone has that same love for their job, then they're going to put in the time, which will help them succeed.
1: Yeah. And the the inverse of this is this burnout syndrome, you know, that a lot of people.
0: Yes. Which high performers. Yeah. And you talk about that. Why are we more likely to burn out? What's the reason?
1: Yeah, so the, the, it's that chronic stress that you're putting on yourself and not, not recognizing the other parts of the equation, right? There's there, the, the, you know, the catapult high-performance trapezium. What basically it highlights is that at the base of this is that there's accountability to yourself. Then there's this aspect of physical capacity, so you're really building the physical capacity. That l- literally means... The physical capacity, that means the endurance for us to have this call tonight. I'm sure you've already had a 12, 14-hour day and we're still at it, call it in in our our work mode. Then one of the most critical things I think is this emotional intelligence uh, component. There is this importance of compassion and the importance of listening and the EQ side of the equation that is in business and in sport that is highly uh, critical and then mental capacity meaning that you're spending the time to educate yourself preparation all of these you know the stamina associated with focusing and then getting to purpose so all of those layers uh, work together i don't think that you know i'm sure we can make arguments for the way that they can be stacked and rearranged and that I think is a reality of where you know, what we're faced with on a day-to-day basis. So look at these athletes that we just heard, you know, for different reasons, right? Different athletes that were on the Olympic stage dropping out. We don't know what the underlying reason is, but there is sounds like there is some stresses some type of stressors there, some type of potentially chronic stressors there that have led to, you know, that decision. Uh, again, I don't want to comment on on that, but I think that we we have to be very mindful about about that. That that's not just <laughs> directed at sport. That think that happens in the workplace as well. When you're not aligned with your job and your purpose, your job description is not aligned with your purpose. And how are you going to you know feel satisfied about your vocation? Uh, how are you going to have the joy associated with around around that? So. I think it's a constantly uh, looking at these different, different components and being very uh, mindful around this emotional intelligence part where you're checking in with yourself and you're speaking to others and you've surrounded yourself with the people that are supportive to help you enable your success. I, I don't believe that it's possible alone. Uh, there's too many things that are happening and there's – too many distractions, uh, in you know that we're faced with on a day-to-day basis. Where it's a uh, this is achievable with somebody trying to do it alone, I, and that's why I emphasize this coaching aspect of uh, in, in the book. It's you need to support yourself with these components because that's how you enhance the the likelihood of success in terms of your objectives.
0: We're going to tackle each of the aspects of the trapezium, and I want to talk about coaching with you as well. So we have a lot of tracks we can go. But I I also want to take it back to early in your life, when you finished your first Ironman, why not became a persistent echo in your head. And I tie a lot of my success, personally, over the last 11 years, also to finishing that first Ironman. And so my question for you, because I think there may be some similarities in how we think about it and, and why we were, before we jumped on air, I mentioned that I felt like we had so many similarities in how we think. Why do you think that, or what is it about accomplishing a hard shit that makes us think that anything's possible?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So I finished the uh, half this last weekend in Santa Cruz and... I went to that, I was in, uh, you know how the morning corral, uh, when you're setting up all your equipment and your gear bag and everything, and you're checking in on your bike, it just hit me. I'm like, this is the, it was like 6am, right? I got there at 5.30 and I'm, it must've been already like 1,500 athletes out of the 2,500 participants. So it was getting pretty busy at 5.30 in the morning and the race doesn't start till 6.45. Right. They, well, that's when they want you kind of queued up. And this 650 was when 645 was when they're going to sing the national anthem. And then 650 they start. Anyways, the thought that went through my mind at 530 was this is not an Ironman. This is a conference of 2500 Taipei people. <laughs> like, you know, like, cause uh, like this is like the, the craziest thing in terms of like, if I, if you want to go to like, if you want to, Meet other people like yourself, and then and you don't get a chance to look at yourself in the mirror. Just go register yourself for an Ironman. It's very humbling to say that you're not alone out there. And usually there's somebody fast, somebody faster than you, uh, and sometimes very fast. Uh, in my case, uh, the humbling thing that I experienced this weekend was I crushed my personal best. Okay, by 30 minutes. Last time I did this race, I was five years younger, and I beat my time by 30 minutes I came in like around 540 and guess what the number one person came in at 348 358 okay Ah. okay and it's close so the number one yeah so you and their age group is we're in the same age group 40 to 44
0: well it's all the you're now people think you know, just a slight digression and because our listeners may not know this. If you look at almost any sport, when you look at age group athletes, you would think, okay, when I get into my early forties, I'm going to have a leg up. Uh, if I stay fit, unfortunately with triathlon, 40 to 45 is, and even 45 to 49 are two of the worst age brackets because all of the professional triathletes are just now retiring. And so they, they're they going from being a professional right up until their late 30s, early 40s, because triathlon, the longer you go, the older you can stay a pro, which is an interesting feat. So now you're in an age group and you're competing against a guy who two years ago or a gal who two years ago was a was a professional triathlete. So don't feel too bad about that.
1: No, I mean, when I looked at the times, the next guy in the men's division was like, 4:40 or something like that. So it goes like almost an hour later. So this guy was definitely a pro, but but coming back to your question, that that's what make that's what gives me the the feeling of, you know, what was your question again? How did you phrase it?
0: Like why for did you because you just started having why not playing in your head. And I just realized after I did that first one, I thought I can do anything in the world I want now.
1: Exactly. So it's those people out there that are breaking new barriers, breaking new records. That's what keeps us motivated. So that's why this this is like a constant cycle, right? So we have a duty to continue to do that for that other person that's inspiring, you know, inspiring the other individual. And I take that responsibility very seriously. Like I have a team of people that I work with that depend on me. I have a responsibility at home in terms of with our children. And we have a responsibility in the community and some of the other work that we're doing. So we have this duty to constantly ask ourselves, why not? And that's a great feeling. I think we're really blessed to be able to do that. My team hates it. Every time I finish a race like that, I usually come back in the office on Monday and like, what do you mean we can't do that?
0: I've got some ideas.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, or or they're like they're like we can't do this. I'm like I don't want to hear that. Well, <laughs> like
0: <laughs> I've told my sons, uh, my children are are both young boys, that the words can't, impossible, why not, those are banned words. They're not allowed to use them. Right? There's oh, try. They're not allowed to try something they they can do whatever we're throwing at them. They just need to figure out how. And so, you know, maybe I'll scar them for life or or maybe they'll go on to have an all right life. But I agree with you. Once you do it, you realize, wait a second, all I have to do is have a plan and do the work. I have to train, right? And if if you can train to do an Ironman, you can probably train to start a podcast or or write a book or, you know, you realize it's about putting the reps in. And so tied to that is accountability or radical responsibility. And so you highlight that as a key to success in physical and or professional lives. Can you share why you look at it that way?
1: Sorry, why do I uh, look at
0: Like, why is true accountability, or or if you want to refer to it even as radical responsibility, I kind of tie the two together. Why are they so important or key to success in our personal and professional lives?
1: I think that most people don't take enough stock of doing it early enough. They're not fully addressing this concept of radical accountability until they're like deep into their careers, Usually it's because then it's forced upon you because you have accountability to like a board or stakeholders or other people, right? So I think that it starts earlier than that, uh, like like all, all things, like principles that we teach our kids, right? Honesty, don't lie, you know, those moral kind of fiber type of important parts of character building. So without understanding the concept of remaining authentic, both... Personally and professionally, I think that it's get, it's developing a shout a hollow entrepreneur that lacks that inner strength necessary to maintain that alignment between what they want to achieve in terms of their vision and the demands that they might have externally. Okay, because you don't want you, know, of course, you got to listen to your board and you got to listen to your stakeholders. And that's going to be a constant voice, a pressure and everything like that. I, I I checked on Twitter, you know, a few minutes before we started and I was like, oh, there's somebody that, you know, is commenting on something that we put out in terms of a press release and stuff like that. There's always like these little influences that keep keep percolating, all right? And it, there's degree of the way that you, you decide uh, to handle that. But first and foremost, unless you are really aligned with what you can do and what you have control over... That's the only way you're going to be able to succeed. So the better understanding that you, that, of who you are as a human, as a leader, as a person capable of executing on whatever you need to do or affecting some sort of change, and until you're identifying with what your values are, what your what your ethics are, um, it's 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 not going to allow you to really break free to executing on what you believe in, right? Because you'll be just Uh, Like we talked about earlier, like you're swimming through trying to navigate what's something you believe in versus somebody else's believing or whatever, you know, so you have to really learn to trust your own abilities and that sense of authenticity so you can gain clarity around what your true purpose is.
0: And so something that can help with that, and you talked about it when you were talking about the high performance model is coaching. Right. And so we all know sports. Sure. Of course I have a coach, whether it's a swim coach, a hockey coach, basketball, whatever it is, we get a coach, we get a trainer in the gym. How can a coach help us in our professional lives in the corporate world?
1: Yeah. It took me a while to recognize that. So biggest thing coach offers is that they're able to help you get out of your comfort zone, whether it's sports, whether it's uh, in, in the corporate world. Okay, so. I've learned a lot uh, from my days swimming at Killarney Community Center. I was a part of Gators Swim Club. You, you know, you and I know a bunch of athletes that, that came out of that program. I was, We always joke amongst us that swam at Gators, there's something in that Killarney water because we all are wired this way that there's like anything is possible kind of mindset. And so we're fortunate there was like a really good. Community around us of parents and coaches, and and the coaches made us do some crazy stuff. So our coach, the the one I, I mentioned, a couple of coaches in my book, but uh, my first swim coach, his name was Andrew Curry. He was an Ironman, incidentally. <laughs> so maybe it's a prerequisite if coaches have gone through that experience, that training experience for themselves, like they they bring a different level of eth- work ethic or or coaching style that makes it very. Uh, important. So, Andrew, I, I think what what I, what I I can speak for all of when I speak speak for all of our cohort of um, of our team that that was underneath him. He was very compassionate. He had a sense of this EQ of being able to speak to athletes, but maximizing what they can what he can get out of them, and most importantly, what you can get out of yourself. All right? So when somebody throws at you, oh, you're doing 100 times 100, okay, that's 10,000 meters of swimming, right? So, I mean, that's like uncomprehensible usually when somebody says, hey, this is what you're practicing today, 100 times 100. Well, you know, those are the, the crazy things that he was able to get out of his kids. And we're talking about like 13, 14, 15-year-olds that just, you know, understood that, okay, yeah, we're going to – maybe it wasn't in one session, but it was – over a swim camp or it was like, you know, over, over morning and evening, we're doing 40 in the morning and 60 in the evening, whatever whatever that numbers are that always sound ridiculous. So coaches have this sense of being able to get you out of your comfort zone, but they are also there to protect you in order to make sure that you can get to that outcome. So on the on the business side, this exact same principle applies. On the business side, where it's different is that the executive coaches that are I, I, the ones that I've worked with that are really good are really helping you establish those processes and efficiencies that really enable you to be a successful leader. So it, so it, sometimes it is structure related that, hey, Paneet, I think that right now you should have a one page plan around such and such objective that you need to accomplish. This one-page plan, you know, might have all of the salient things that I need to accomplish for the next quarter. Uh, for instance, you yeah, know, fine. This sounds like, you know, in, in hindsight, and anybody can think about, hey, this is what I need to do from a practical standpoint. But sometimes, with when you're trying to make, you know, a lot of decisions, like we're talking about spending millions of dollars on a clinical trial, we have clinical sites around the world. We have different uh, uh, decisions that um, involve various aspects of the business from the public market side, licensing from trying you know to establish value with, with partnering and, and at the same time, there's the day-to-day operations. So I believe that that um, uh, executive coaches and, and just business coaches offer that guide as well in terms of really keeping you sharp and in shape to push you to what, what needs to get done, and it's almost like a sense of accountability, right? Outside of your board, your board, like in my in my case, we have our formality around our board where we meet with them quarterly, and you know you want to make sure. But the board, remember, in at least in public companies, most often private companies, they're focused on looking out for the shareholders, and uh, my fiduciary responsibility is looking out for the shareholders as well. But I also have my job to do on a day-to-day basis of making sure I execute against the plan well then i'm not going to be talking to my board every single day on hey what do we think about this or what do i what should we do on this side i speak to my management team around that and in order for there to be alignment sometimes you need to have that little bit of nudge or push or bringing them uh getting them outside of their comfort zone my job is to get my team out of my comfort zone and i also Feel it's necessary to work with a coach to get me out of my comfort zone from time to time.
0: And let's say that I want a coach. What should I be looking for in a coach, and what should I be doing myself to get the most out of that coach once I've hired one? So,
1: be I think. Uh, so, what you should be looking for is a fit. You know, somebody that doesn't annoy you, but at the same time. Gets under your skin enough that they are calling you out uh, on what needs to get done. So I think what's important is that the coach is really challenging you to learn. They hold you accountable. They reaffirm your commitment and they're enabling you to do better. You're going to, they're enabling you to continually improve. You know, have you ever heard of this idea that you hire a consultant and they're always like, they're like the yes people? You know, like you hire a consultant and they're like, oh yeah, this is, they always make you feel good. That's what it was. Like, you know, uh, somebody you're paying $200 an hour, of course, you know, they're always going to tell you what you want to hear, even though it's bad, bad news. I don't think that 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 functions really well. This is why sometimes working with consultants can be difficult. I I mean that in a very constructive way. What I'm saying really is that there's a difference in ownership, right? Around somebody that's, coming in and parachuting in and working around a problem like a contractor or a consultant versus your full-time teammate that owns this area or owns a particular thing. So you know everyone has a different role and so don't take that in any negative way. However, in the in the case of a coach, I think it's a it's almost like the hybrid of, of the both. They have the ownership because they have your back. At the same time they, you know, are an important expert to rely on that are helping you reaffirm your commitment to what you're trying to do. And those are the qualities you're looking for in terms of somebody that, that you feel that you can be yourself with and is helping you to elevate yourself. The other question that you had was.
0: Yeah. So once, once we found them and then how do we get the most out of them?
1: Yeah. And that just boils down to plain old communication, you know? So, you know, I, I don't think that enough communications Too much communication is a bad thing, you know. Obviously, the important thing is getting into a rhythm around some sort of communication. So I'm not suggesting that you got to call your coach every day or every minute. No, you know, like in my case, you know, maybe I sometimes speak to uh, my executive coach once every two months or you know once every quarter. You know, just sometimes it's just a check in, and sometimes it's not even you know to do with anything that's important, or sometimes it's around something important, and I'm like, hey, I'm preparing for this, wanted to run it by you. What do you think about this approach? So the check-ins really are really what from what you need. And uh, the frequency is around the cadence that you develop with your coach. Uh, take, for instance, my triathlon coach. He's been coaching me for 10 years, now 10 plus years. Sends me a work, uh, sends me a you know plan every month. I follow the plan, you know, not all the time. But, but if I'm preparing for a race, then I'm you know, definitely working hard on following the plan. We text each other in terms of how my effort is going, or or any assistance I need. Like for instance, going uh, getting prepared for that race that last weekend. He was in Hawaii doing a training camp. Called me on Saturday, He's like, "Hey, you good? You got? A, are you all ready?" You know, reminded me about the importance of nutrition because he had checked the temperature of the uh, what the day was going to look like the next day. I hadn't done that yet. Great, thanks. You know, Coach Felipe, that was important uh, reminder for me, and 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 so on. So. I think it's all dependent on what you need and you're going to develop that cadence. One coach that I've worked with really helped me establish a good structure around CEO communications as well. So I think beyond just the the, communication cadence with your your one-on-ones with your coach, it's also how does that translate to the communication amongst your team? So that what I found is that consistency is very important. It's very important for your team to know when they have your time and undivided attention. And it's very important for your board to know when that is. So there are different levels and different people and different roles that are in any organization. I think we all need to respect each other's time and establishing a communication cadence is a very good structure to do that.
0: And so that brings up a good question because you write about and we know that communication is so important in sport, in business, and in our home lives. So what are some tips and tricks, cadence aside, that you recommend for people to improve those communication channels?
1: I think at the end of the day, what I really value in communication is use the opportunities to continue to reinforce mutual trust, right? Mm -hmm. So like we're going beyond the day to day like hey how's it going type of thing like i think that the that goes without saying what's critical is that on those days when things aren't perfect and it's not like just steady operations discussions then strong relationships are formed between people based on mutual trust and that's critical for very good communication because from that you know is is how you I think succeed in terms of getting to that authenticity and accountability. So trust, I think, comes in like establishing that trust. Is there's tools in communication that help you to do that? Like oftentimes, I think what I've learned is that uh, CEOs kind of wear. In my case, I've experienced this where you wear different hats. There's like this component of wearing a hat externally when you're speaking with investors, and there's really this. You know, sales persona that's important for pitching the value proposition around an idea or a company or, or technology and so, and so forth. What I you know, experienced early on in one of my last companies was that sometimes you got to turn that off when you're speaking to your team. You can't necessarily be in that mode and establish the same level of uh, straight talk that's necessary. So the straight talk is, I think, critical in order to establish good mutual trust. What I finally, I think, I'm I'm trying to get better at it. I'm working with Riaz, actually. So trying to see how he, uh, you know, learning some of his principles is that can we marry the two where you're really just comfortable around that responsibility that we have when you're speaking to an external audience? And sometimes, yeah, it could be... Changing your pitch could be you know, this other voice that is important that's necessary for a particular audience. And it's the same voice but in a different pitch for your team. So that I think that that for me comes back to being authentic, right? Like I remember working with a speaking coach one time and they were like, Oh, you gotta act to your audience and you gotta be this like grandiose person and stuff like that. And I'm like, no, I'm not gonna be like doing a Shakespearean play talking about a technology. I want to be myself, but at the same time for me, like one of the challenges for me has been, I got to put myself on like a word diet because I have a tendency to over explain things sometimes. Uh, most often they like, could even look at the way I'm doing this. I'm spending too much time. That. But that's, that comes down to, for me, is being very clear and pithy with my, what I'm trying to get across. So I think we totally digressed, but... uh,
0: (laughs) No, 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 we're still on it. And uh, for listeners, Puneet was mentioning Riaz. Riaz was our guest on episode 20 uh, and the author of Every Conversation Counts and phenomenal conversationalist and full of great advice for how to have a conversation and how to create relationships through conversations. If you want to dive deeper into that, have a listen. And then the... oh.
1: Oh, go, no, go ahead. Finish. I got,
0: it. I got it. Oh, sorry. The thing you were saying right there with the word diet, I think your uncle hit on that when you were younger. And I, I loved how he had the rule for you of explaining it like you're talking to a sixth grader. And can, so can you share with us what that was and, and how that rule has helped you in life?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's pretty simple in terms of just simplifying things so that you can explain it to a grade six. Level person, I mean, we do that I think every day with speaking to our kids. I was dropping off my nine-year-old, and she was telling me about this experience that they had with the substitute. These these kids are in grade four, but they had a substitute teacher, and these they're, they're wonderful kids. Like they they just their classroom teacher loves them. Substitute teacher wrote a four-page report about how awful you know her experience was. So they had a debrief about that today with their actual homeroom teacher. And my daughter was explaining to us, and she explained to me, and she's like, this this is what all, all this stuff that happened. And she's like, I don't understand you know, why she made those kind of comments. And I, I reacted and told her, it's like, sounds like, you know, she had a bit of a power trip. Oh, yeah, it was around the statement she made about this is my classroom. And the kids corrected her and said, actually, no, it's not my classroom. It's not your classroom. It's Miss Cole's classroom because they were taking it literally. And so, they went on this this little like, you know, discussion with her and then she ended up taking that and saying, you know, calling them out on it or something like that. And, and um, so, I was telling my daughter it, it was a power trip. It sounds like a, some sort of power trip this teacher had at that moment. And she's like, what does that mean? So, I think that we have this duty of kind of simplifying things, different, some concepts, some nomenclature, or some things that are really normal for us as adults and jargon that we use sometimes needs to be simplified. But I digress. What I wanted to uh, talk about in terms of uh, tips and in terms of communication, I also think they're relatable to athletics. So, you know, as a athlete, I think you and being an endurance athlete, you probably understand those mental games that come with endurance sports but at the same time the physical toll that you put on your body and it's you're, it's almost like you're you're always connecting with different parts of your body and one of those you know long runs or a marathon or or you did an ultra right so I, yeah you got to tell me about that experience and maybe
0: it was one of the worst experiences of my life for sure
1: yeah. so i can't imagine what that felt like because it's almost like you're constantly firing back you know these different messages from different joints and other things. So that communication pathway has been established over miles and miles and miles and miles of training that finally during race, your body's like, okay, well, Clint, I'm going to be there for you (laughs) and I'm not going to turn off, right? Trust me that I got you under control. You, You just make sure that you keep giving me energy and give pounding back those you know, chews and blocks and drinks and stuff like that and keep me going and I'm going to st- stay there with you. Well, it's a primitive form of communication, but the body and the brain are really linked there as long as you're doing your part of taking in the nutrition in a in a situation like that.
0: It's interesting how you say that because it's when I described that day, it the first half was going phenomenally well. And I think I finished the first marathon in just over four hours, was feeling good. I'm like, okay, you know, I'll probably slow down the second one. I'll do eight and a half. That's a good day. I'm I'm happy with this. And I was walking the aid stations. You know, sometimes I do that in Ironman or, or halves as well. That's the break. That's the recharge. Communicate with the body. Hey, I'm going to let you rest for, for a minute while I have some grapes and a Coke, and then I'm going to get running again. And I hit an aid station. And I actually, I've always used these words. So you nailed it. I got out of the aid station, and I went to start running again. And my body said, no, no, right? And, and I use those words, my body said no. It communicated to me, we're, we're not running anymore today. We're, we're done, right? So, you know, I ignored it, and I, I think I walked about 15 kilometers, and then I was able to start running one, walking one, running one, walking one to the finish line. But it, it literally was a form of communication the body just said, no, we're done today. You, you aren't ready for this. Like, you know, and, and there was some, some challenges with, with health that morning, but you're right. Like there's that, your body, there's a form of communication to you and uh, for, forgetting his name The cyclist, it'll probably pop into your head, but he was famous for always saying during the tour, he would go on some of the longest breakaways on his own, right? Solo breakaways. And he would just say to, his famous line was, legs shut up.
1: Is this Fabian Cancellara?
0: Not Cancelera. I have, um, for some reason, like Yen's Voigt is jumping in my head, but it was always just like legs shut up. Right. And so he just didn't let, he never let his body tell him it was, you know, done time. So that motivated me that day. I was sort of like, hey, legs, if I have to, I'll just walk. Right. But uh, there was definitely communication there. The, so, I want to take you back because there was one quote that I really want to throw out and read to you. And I mean, a big part of what we're talking about today is how people can use these techniques and tools to change their life, right? And so, this quote was about that. What you said was if you have a real desire for change, you must have clarity in the things you want to achieve in business, and in sports. And if you lay out the roadmap, you begin to mark paths that will take you where you want to go. Beyond this, if you want to ensure success in your undertakings, the most important thing you can do is prepare, over-prepare, and have contingency plans at the ready in order to weather any storm. This creates resilience, and resilience is required for success. Can you take us through that? Because I, I just found that quote so powerful and a true roadmap for how you can actually achieve anything in life, whether it's business, sport, personal. You embodied a lot in that one quote.
1: Okay, yeah. So there's, that's a great. Thanks for noting that. Because there was a lot jam packed in that. I remember writing that and thinking to myself, "There's just there's two parts to this. I want to break it up into." Two. Two parts. One is this whole aspect of resilience, which doesn't come across enough in this book, but it's been a a kind of underlying part of it, which is there's this quintessentially kind of immigrant story, you know, that we're all too fond of, right? Uh, All too, like, kind of familiar with. One is like, you're beating the odds, you're bootstrapping your way through success. You know, we have these images of immigrants who kind of cross the shores to make their marks and it's the you know whatever the western dream right like whether you're in canada or the u.s there is like this concept of just these hardy souls that really are have this will about them and if you study hard you get jobs you start businesses and then you save your money for your first home and you scrape together you're ultimately going to achieve things and it's going to be like, you know, whatever, your definition of success or whatever. What what I'm getting at there is that why that's, you know, tied to this immigrant kind of resilience component is that there is this feeling, I think, that is better described as like kind of having a chip on your shoulder around having to prove yourself because that's the way, that was a ticket, you know, that was a ticket out of that cycle. You know, you have to break through in order to, get to that next place. But once you're out, you have this responsibility to give back, right? Like I remember my university professor, I forgot his name, but he was from Kenya. And he would say that when he became a professor, he sent his first two months of checks back to to his parents. And think the majority of the class was like surprised or like they're dumbfounded by like, wow, this is like so generous of you. And I'm like, This is normal. (laughs) Like, you know, like (laughs) I've been, I was wired, like, I'm, I still send checks to my mom, right? Like, that's that's the way that you, you're hardwired in terms of uh, you put back, you put back into the community and you try to do as much as you can to, to, to help uh, others. So there's that part of it. And then there's this kind of modern day component of living in California where it's really, Entrepreneurial and there's this idea of failing fast and failing forward. So of course we got tons of business ideas. There's like every day somebody pitches something new, and it's like we have this duty to go and interrogate all these different ideas. Especially in research, when you're doing life sciences, you you have a lot of different failed starts until you select a molecule, or you have some kind of stage gate decision to make a, a key decision. So. Inevitably, in life sciences or in entrepreneurship, there's this concept of, okay, you got this end goal. Could be that I'm going to use the life science example. The end goal here is that we got to get our product commercialized. And there are certain phases along the way that we need to reach in order to get there. But there is definitely going to be things that are outside of our control that come along and get in the way of that. So you and so one ends up becoming very comfortable with always developing contingency plans that inevitably you're going to have some sort of hiccup. So you need to rely on your plan B. Like whenever I'm doing any planning for a board meeting, I usually go into the board meeting with my core plan, which is my scenario A. But I have on the ready my scenario B and scenario C most often. I never really go beyond that for a board meeting, but of course I'm thinking already about scenario D in case I need it and that's that's a part of my responsibility you know as as a CEO. So same thing happens in the in in racing uh and uh, you know in you relied on your scenario B when you had to walk on walk 15 kilometers so you can recuperate get the nutrition back in your body your GI working again your communication working again and then boom you're off to the races again. So we're there's two parts to that quote that section of the book one is this very important responsibility of doing more and doing better and doing it very consciously around our responsibility around our, our community and and wherever we can make an impact and then on this this i love the fact that you know this growing up in a very entrepreneurial family and then on top of that having this experience working in the in the biotech space. Yeah the the world is literally oyster like t- we were today we were talking you know about developing the drug for X Y and Z like there are three unique areas that patients don't have any or haven't had a solution in a long time in fact in one mm-hmm. of the areas that we were talking about there's no drug currently available so so you know it's it, it's really a privilege to be able to have that ability to bring these types of products to the market and i think the same is true for any industry.
0: And so in your job in, you're saying there is a lot of planning for the best, but preparing for the worst, right? Is the way we always talk about it at work is, you know, it's great to plan for the best, but if we're not prepared for the worst, when it, when, and if it happens,
1: we're in trouble. You'd be surprised if you taught me that is uh, Winnie. Oh, okay. Yeah. So when we were training, she had done the Ironman Canada in Penticton and, so, when I signed up for it, she was like the veteran, had already done it and actually trained on the course quite a bit. So, we drove up to Penticton. We did the entire bike course. And then she made me run eight miles after the bike course. I'm like, why are we, why are we with the run right now? And she purposely took me the opposite direction where, because in the, in the actual race, and I mentioned this in the book, it goes the other, you see the finish line, but you have to go the other direction for about. 800 meters and then make the turn. Then you have like a 800 meters to come back. So you run away from the finish line when it's right there. And she purposely made me go through that because it was like, she's like, trust me, when you're at the finish, when you see the finish line, it's not the finish line. And you need to, you need to know what it feels like.
0: The year that you did that, did you end up having hail on the bike course that day?
1: I don't know. No, I don't know. I don't think so. That was the year. I believe that was the year after.
0: Okay, yeah. So we we would have done it in a, a right around a similar time. It's so interesting. Yeah, it was such a great, such a beautiful course. And, you know, talking about that, talking about Ironman or ultra marathons and how it relates to our lives and how it relates to the trapezium. How does increasing our physical capacity increase the rest of our game, whether it's personal, professional, and financial?
1: Oh, 100%. You know, like so the the whole concept that we learn from athletics is that you you're this whole adaptive process to, to training, right? So we, there's, there's actually literature around this where you're training, you're increasing stress resistance in your body. So your your body goes through kind of its natural resources to go through that. And then there's this next phase of which is resistance, which is regarded as phase two, which is where you're coping with the different stressors. So you, that's the optimal zone, uh, that, that phase two. Phase three ends up being the bad stresses, the exhaustion, your reserves are depleting and uh, you're, you're not able to maintain that. So you're basically what you're trying to do, in I think, in life and sports and work is continuing to maintain this medium between low and high stress resistance over time. And maintain a sweet spot where you're able to cope with what life throws at you, and that's very beneficial. Of course, once in a while, you're gonna go into the other sides of it where it's too low activity, and you think I gotta get back to work, like a vacation after a vacation, or you're exhausted and you're depleted your resources, and you're like, I need to go take, recharge my batteries. So I think that that sweet spot, you know, and, and that. There's a lot of literature on on that. There's a lot of literature on this 80-20 training. Like when you're running, you don't spend 80% of your time going all out, and then 20% of your time doing base work. It's usually the other way around. It's 80% of the time is done in base work, and then you you do 20% of your time or in uh, you know some of the, the high threshold work. All of that is meant to help continue to improve those different stressors. So. Yes, I firmly believe in high performance. I think that the sky is the limit in terms of where somebody's potential is. We've seen some amazing achievements in our lifetime. Did you see that Elliot uh, Kipchoge? He broke the two-hour marathon record, right? So,
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so that's... Controversial, but yeah, absolutely incredible.
1: Yeah, but whatever Everybody's that's getting all up in arms about the controversy around it, it's still an amazing human feat, you know, even with all of the...
0: Yeah, they thought it was physiologically impossible and he showed that it wasn't.
1: Yeah, and it, they thought, you know, people thought it was estimating that it would not happen until 2060 or 2070 or something like that. So for us to be able to see that in our lifetime or when uh, the four-minute barrier was broken for the mile or world records were broken at, at the Olympics, it, it is very impressive. That's only happening because people are continuing to you know manage that and and that's why we as athletes continue to improve and the same thing applies to your work life and in the corporate environment i think that companies have a responsibility to push the barriers for technology that's how you're going to allow uh, breakthroughs to happen in life sciences that is how breakthroughs are happening is because we have to experiment and we have to try different ideas and sometimes you're like oh, wow, okay, that's what we're going to do then. That's the answer. And we can say the same in the technology space or now what's really cool to see in our lifetime, we're going to see broader interdependence between these different industries, right? You're going to see technology and AI and all of these cutting edge
0: robotics and life sciences.
1: Yeah, all of these things working together. And so that's the most exciting thing I'm looking forward to in the next 10 years is that it's... it's, Truly going to be a transformation before our eyes. It's an amazing time to be living. Why not participate in that, right? Why not be a contributor to that? Why not, you know, lend your support, your services if you have extra cash? You know, why not invest in that? That's all of our responsibility to see that type of change happen. That's the way we participate.
0: And, you know, would you say that your ability to operate at the level you operate at every day for the hours that you have to do it at wouldn't be viable without that physical conditioning and training that you've gone through over the last 20
1: years? 100%. I am super blessed that I continue to remind myself on how important that is so that I don't lose that. And, yeah, I I do want to go to Okinawa. But I also want to run a marathon when I'm 100, you know, like, so there's a, definitely a component of the physical capacity and the health uh, side of the equation, the physical health side of the equation that is going to enable enable us to be able to run longer and faster and harder and, you know, keep up with our grandkids, hopefully.
0: And, you know, the, the other side of that that you talk about and, and you mentioned for the trapezium is mental stamina. Right, it's not enough to just to be physically strong in your role and my role. You have to be able to be mentally strong and on your game the whole day. And you personally meditate in the mornings and the evenings. And so, my question is, when did your meditation practice start, and how has that helped you in life and work?
1: So I was a late uh, starter on meditation. I, I always I used to be fairly focused on faith and. Early on, so like my dad was very religious, so we would spend a lot of time doing kind of faith based meditation, read, reading, and so forth. But as an adult, I, I really didn't take it up until maybe about seven years ago and or eight years ago in terms of more aggressively, even you know, during the time when I did my first Ironman, I wasn't doing that. I always appreciated visualization though, so prior to a race or prior to a big event. I would take the time to visualize whatever I I wanted to see outcome. And I I still do this. I spend a lot of time, even when I'm meditating, is imagining what that outcome is going to look like and physically putting myself there. I love when that gets realized and it keeps giving me more confidence to keep practicing it. So that's been a big part of my meditation practice today is that it, it comes in different forms. Sometimes it's very guided and sometimes it's not. And it it has evolved around energy, understanding the body, body awareness. And then this 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 concept of visualization around different objectives that I want to see happen or what I'd like to see come to fruition. And sometimes, yeah, maybe it doesn't count as meditation, but there is a bit of planning that goes up along in that and saying, okay, well, this is... The steps, and then you know, come to the computer and kind of type it out or hash it out or, or whatever needs to happen. So, uh, I think it's a it's a big part of establishing the capacity for resilience because that's you're a developer, so you know you know what planning how that helps in order in order to execute against a project.
0: The I know we're getting late, so just a couple more questions for you that. Uh, you talked about joy earlier, and I loved what you wrote about the concept of, because everyone always asks about work-life balance, and I'm I'm such a non-believer in that concept. And I thought you nailed it when you talked about this concept of work-self-life passion, which is, it is for sure a mouthful. But can you share with our listeners, what is work-self-life passion? And how does your concept, and this can be the second part of the question, how does your concept of a joy quotient tie into it? So maybe just focus on the work, self-life, passion, and then we'll we'll dive into joy quotient to kind of wrap things up.
1: Yeah. So I don't believe in this work-life balance thing that people aspire to. It's impossible. I thought I did at one point, and then I it didn't really jive really well. I'm like, I don't have balance. Let's just live with the fact that I'm not going to be able to establish a balance. However, I do take pride in the different parts of my life. So so when you break it down, it broke down into work that I want to be passionate about everything related to my job, including the social events, including the travel associated with work, including the interaction with my staff, anything in my life that is bringing home that paycheck. The self side of it is the things that I just want to do for myself. That that includes the self care side: exercising, meditating, reading, um, you know, anything that I'm doing for myself and use alone. And the life side of it is the the people and the causes and everything that I believe that matter to me outside of work. And so these are the things that you are do you most care about: family, kids. And and they're not associated with furthering your business interests. Okay, so that falls into the first bucket. That's kind of the definition between work, the differences between work, self and life. And inevitably, you have this constant like algorithm that you're trying to figure out that's perfect, you know, and, and that's what's going to keep your marriage intact and your wife not trying to stab you in your sleep and your kids happy. And, you know, you're being an attentive father and at the same time, a good citizen and and a wise ceo and supportive leader and all of that stuff. So it's not perfect. Uh so I uh, I feel like you know you have to constantly measure it and that's where the kind of the joy quotient was was developed is like okay you have these different buckets so how are you going to hold yourself accountable to the buckets unless you define values for yourself and you know being a quantifiable person that that likes looking at uh, dashboards for a living. I think that was a part of it is that how do you, you know, can we put values around it? And does the values help you aspire to get better or keep yourself in check, even if you accept that it's not going to be a balance? It's perfect, right? It's,
0: and it's different for everyone. And you have to make sure that you're ticking all of the boxes in the various categories that make you happy while, while getting done the priorities that you have for yourself in life.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: So as we wind up, is there anything that you want to add to the end of the conversation for the listeners that we may not have covered in our conversation so far today?
1: No, I really appreciate the opportunity. I think we covered so much ground in terms of the, the book. I know I like I said, I'm very passionate about this aspect of what we started off in in the conversation, that there is a there is this kind of responsibility that we have as entrepreneurs and people that are working in different industries to support each other. And so there is a component of uh, another passion project that I've been involved with from day one as a, as a co-founder and, and um, I sit on the board is Yale Canada. So it's an organization that's focused on kind of foundational learning of business as well as leadership and self-development and then my, as well as mindfulness in the business world. It's, it's a Canadian program and it's a really, really awesome opportunity to partake in, in, uh, in terms of what's happening in terms of education. I think that that is a critical part, uh, to the equation in, in chapter 10 of the book, I actually spend a bit of time on why education is a very important foundation for, for the future. But I believe that, you know, consciously or unconsciously, there is this, uh, responsibility uh, that we have towards kind of, uh, being ourselves, achieving, what we want to do and transferring that knowledge to the next generation and applying that in terms of a purpose-driven life and then kind of leveraging those lessons that we learn. And I've tried to capture that in a book that I hope is very captivating and appreciate the opportunity of speaking with you about it.
0: Excellent. It was very captivating, and I appreciate it and definitely align with a lot of your messages. And, you know, it's not surprising that we know a lot of the same people and have uh, participated in a lot of the same sports and sought out the same things in life because we we were at the conferences with 2,500 other type A people who are driven the same way, rather.
1: We're going to have to do a ride and a run soon. So I'm going to hit you up for that.
0: I got to get back into shape. I focused last year on powerlifting and uh and then stopped so i've got to start again i'm i'm pretty out of shape i can probably get in shape for a run i don't know about a ride though
1: oh you'll be fine
0: <laughs> i read about that in your book i know what you mean when you say it
1: <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> that's right no but the cool thing about lifting i did a little bit more lifting before this this last race and it paid off I was trying, i've been trying to balance the endurance with the lifting and it's been good and i've taken up uh paddle boarding prone paddle boarding so I'm kind of now addicted to that side of the endurance uh, sports so I'm, I'm training for a big paddleboard race next year which I want to give it a try but it's using all these different muscles and and the, the other stuff is all complementary so your powerlifting yeah at least you you know you can always carry me on your back and then we can run
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 I look forward to hearing how that goes for you Thank you for joining us on The Pursuit of Learning. Make sure to hit the subscribe button and head over to our website, thepursuitoflearning.com, where you will find our show notes, transcripts, and more. If you like what you see, sign up for our mailing list. Until next time, your host in learning, Clint Murphy.